0: Hey guys. Due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking To Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk.
1: Good morning, faithful reader.
0: Welcome, fortunate speaker.
1: This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata.
0: Podcast Guys Talking Erratic errata is whirlwind
1: reread of The Practical Guide to Evilware. A historian. And a literature scholar. Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as...
0: How many Proserin ladies has Kat been flirting with? <gasps>
1: and I bet you didn't even see it coming. Dread Emperor Traitoris, the I. And what is Catherine's plan? We'll find out in Book 4, Chapter 44.
0: So some chapters, some sequences of chapters, some sections of the text are rich and valuable and filled with things to ponder and address, but it doesn't get anywhere for a bit. They can be on their way to a place for chapters and chapters And then other chapters go from one thing to another and bring us straight into an escalation or explosion, so to speak, maybe literally, within the span of a few thousand words. And this is definitely one of the second category. We start in a tavern we've never been in. Catherine meets a nice bartender with more teeth than you'd expect. She hits it off with a nice young lady, uh, gets naked with her as you'd expect uh heads off to a secret meeting of disaffected traitors and gets into a fight with everyone before things blow up and she gets into a fight with everyone
1: it's a dense chapter for sure she's barely arrived in the city we get a little bit of a time skip in this one at the beginning of this one but from the point of from the important parts of the narrative to the next important part of the narrative it all kind of just gets crammed into one chapter. Not in a bad way. It's it's fast-paced. It's not rushed.
0: No, from the perspective of local government, I think we did miss a moment or
1: two. Sure, but sort of like uh, Mazes' death, I think the off-screen version is, is pretty good here.
0: And that death, much like Mazes' death, is that of an imperial governor. Or governess, rather. One of the few gendered words in the English language. So, the summer home economy confuses me in very many ways. We've discussed already the currency situation, and I will discuss shortly the currency situation. But Catherine is looking for an in that is, quote, lowbrow enough for someone of my means, but still saw enough traffic to be worth my time. And... I'm no economist because it's a pretend job for liars, but wouldn't a particularly lowbrow tavern still command traffic or it would stop being a tavern?
1: I assume that what she means is she's looking for the kind of tavern that's busy enough that a stranger wandering in isn't declaring war. More or less, she's not looking for The kind of tavern that is obviously this tavern as we learned is pretty exclusively i guess royalists um for its patrons but i think she's looking for a place that's that that's going to be the former soldiers and that sort of thing while not being so insular that when somebody they don't recognize walks in she gets stabbed instantly
0: that makes a lot of sense she's trying to find the portal to the secret clubhouse but not to walk into the secret clubhouse uninvited.
1: Right. She's not she's not trying to she's not trying to be an invader. She's trying to find the the entryway. Exactly.
0: She's sure lucky that The Lost Crown
1: caters to that kind of demographic. No kidding. That would have been a place I probably would have been concerned about going into even were I a royalist. It's that is such a statement.
0: But apparently it's so royalist that They would, in Catherine's assessment, likely end up slitting her throat if she committed such a misstep as to use the dominant and more reliable currency because it comes from the empire, rather than a somewhat distant, if more nationalist, currency that is less trustworthy and also more of a local denomination than the currency which dominates half of the civilized continent at this point? I am no economist. (laughs) Thank the gods above. But what is this?
1: I mean, it very well could just be as simple as, yeah, they understand that the denarii are more generally used and probably some of the people in here use them if they work public-facing jobs. But it also is just here in The Lost Crown. It's not the fact that if they see the silver of the empire they're shoved into a a a blood rage it's more just if you go to a place like this and you pull out an imperial coin you're making a statement and it's not a statement that they can stand it's you're asking for a fight if you say look and i've got the empire's silver here and Catherine doesn't want to ask for a fight until later in the evening and she does yeah she asks for a, a fight politely and wants to make money on the fight she doesn't spend money to get fought she wants to you know more or less bet on herself which speaking of we do get uh the valuable gems to farm goods uh betting thing again uh her her phrase that diamonds she likes to to, not this time this time we get apples to rubies we get so we're we've reached ruby stage we're, we're past diamonds for now but we dropped the piglets and are now doing apples Honestly, apples to rubies, rubies to apples is great. I like that turn of phrase. There's a, there's, rubies are commonly red. You've got a nice red apple. You know, there's some imagery there that's nice. It's too bad this one doesn't stick around.
0: Speaking of things that did not stick around, I was just wondering if you recall anything about the Royal Guard. Catherine supposes that nine out of ten of the patrons were probably Royal Guard during the conquest. Do we know much about this? unit organization or should we just go with what is obvious you know elite kingdom level fighting people
1: yeah i'm not sure i don't recall the name but on the flip side no that's not really the flip side i don't recall the name but i imagine given nine out of the ten people who are here might have been that i doubt these are the elite household guards of the king or what have you those would probably not have survived the conquest at, at least no, at knowing
0: a... the way Catherine perceives the world who knows what's <laughs> right or wrong
1: true true um but you wouldn't expect 90 percent of uh uh of a unit like that to survive the conquest i imagine royal guard is probably the name for the professional foot of callow or something something broad like that where it's they're not the levies they're not the knights they're the professional foot soldiers so that makes a lot of sense yeah, militaries do that they they apply prestigious things to huge groups just to make their entire army sound better so and did it be, work it worked here kalos sounds like they've got a fancy royal guard and they definitely won that the war because of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when kat enters this place the the lost crown she's a little concerned about being accepted, she's a little concerned about how she's going to interact with these people given the fact that they're, frankly, bordering on being extremists, given that it's been 20 years Um, and she says, I mean, I think the fact that they're hanging out in a bar instead of, like, burning the city down Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe... Give it a chapter Okay. and also
0: get blurry with responsibility Right. It's going to happen. <laughs>
1: Fair enough. But she says the one thing she's willing to bank on is her coloring that uh, she doesn't look like she doesn't look like she's pricy. And she says the line or internally monologues the line. And when have any of the people capital P made truce with the enemy capital E? And here I think people is referring to the dwarf um just Based on what she's been talking about, which is interesting uh, that that culture is the people, even in Kalo, but it very well could just mean that the people is referring to Kaloans and Dwarith all collectively. Kind of unclear, but I'm leaning towards Dwarith. Anyway, um, my thought here is it's interesting that she makes this distinction and says that's a point in her favor. And normally I would. In a non-practical guide setting, I would think that that makes sense. She's saying the Dwarith never make peace with the enemy, Price. But in this setting, in Kalernia, there are modified and powerful examples of the exception being a big deal. If she's hot out in any way, if she seems like the weird stranger who shows up in a major Legion stronghold... If she's, you know, she's Dwarith, she's the wrong kind of person to be in this space. It could easily be, sure, a new hero or something. She's the weird person that lends itself to being named. But I can also see this being the exception. You know, something like the traitor or something as as an as a title as a name because names are the exception when there is a big exception that's the more powerful person that you need to worry about when everybody is one thing and you stand out unlike in real life where the person who stands out is you know going to be an outcast the person who stands out in Colernia is going to end up more powerful than everybody around them i don't know there's this is very much thinking without considering what roles bring to the table i think um from cat and I mean, it's a fair assumption from her, probably from the people around her, even though they do have a hero in place. I don't know if this is tortured logic that's missing, that's uh, going too far beyond what this simple conversation in her head is actually about. But I don't know, it's just a a thought that banking on, well, if I'm the exception, oh well, is a weird stance given names, I think.
0: While I think you raise a very good point... I think, perhaps, we can just chalk this up to Callow recognize Callow, and we'll see even in the next chapter that if you swear your allegiance against the kingdom, if you work in direct contravention of liberation, if you're Caloan, you're still better than a Pracy invader would be. Caloans have merit by being Callowins, it's part of the Caloan cosmology, and I don't think they're willing to abandon that, even if treason became a name, and perhaps because of that treason can't. but I, I that's not the point. The point is if a Callowin sees a Callowin, I don't think any facts or logic apply. They say one of us, and then I'm probably going to hold a grudge against you anyway soon enough, and then they talk about horses
1: i think I think you're probably right. I mean, next chapter, for sure, we get a an example of that where. Well, no spoilers, but uh, the hero that we've been hinting at pretty readily trusts Catherine based on her being Tallowin, and she lives to see another day kind of pretty much explicitly because of that fact.
0: Well, she sees another day at least. The <laughs> verb the other verb was a bit contentious.
1: Cont- she exists to see another day.
0: No oh, poor soul. Speaking of poor souls, we get our first reference to the wardens uh, of the duchy. We know very little about them here, and we certainly don't know about the poor souls. But we hear that, quote, Callowin children were raised on stories about the unflinching, brown-cloaked wardens and the way they hunted orcs all the way back to the steps when they dared to come in sight of the wall. And I think that's fun. Let's keep paying attention to them.
1: They are unfortunate and also extremely cool
0: i mean who among us wouldn't want to be one
1: well the uh cat is looking for uh essentially looking for a fighting ring that's sort of her cover story here and she quickly is informed about one by the innkeeper here toothless tom and i understand the place that is suggested to her is probably entirely unrelated and this is nothing but he tells her that there is a ring underneath a place called the Lucky Pilgrim and just to be safe I'm giving that place a glare. I just got to be on the safe side here. Probably unrelated, but
0: I find it curious that that fighting ring under the Lucky Pilgrim though is apparently bigger than the pit had ever managed to become. I am not claiming good retention of Callowin demographics. But is Summerhome larger than Lore? Is it just the relative population of disaffected veterans? Is it that it's orkier? What's up with this?
1: Um, I would imagine it's how full of people who know how to fight Summerhome is. It's got disaffected veterans. It's got a lot of orcs. It's got legionaries generally. It's also the gate of the east. It's the bastion against which Prace was expected to shatter on all of its invasions so it's even without disaffected veterans it probably has a history of having a lot of soldiers there i don't know it it's probably just it's a very fighty city so people fight so
0: thankfully this isn't star wars it would just be the city where people fight
1: <laughs> yes the fortunately not Colonia does not fall prey to the city of hats trope i guess
0: the crown of the dead ends up being a lot more varied than you'd
1: expect oh yeah for sure
0: considering part of the crown of the dead really ends up being a hell that seems to basically be rural insert, beautiful country. They do well. Not a bad life. Honestly, if I had to live in Calernia,
1: especially in this the serenity,
0: era, sounds pretty good.
1: Yeah. Especially in this era, you could do way worse than there.
0: There's also a really nice place in Calo. That I think would probably be fine. It's down South. It's by a lake kind of near the waning woods. Um, uh, used to be a seat of a duchy, so it's got that kind of history. seems really peaceful, and I don't think anything bad would happen there
1: I mean it sounds nice, but I've heard flights out are terrible. ooh, very good. thank you <laughs> um cat cat talks to toothless Tom a little bit more um trying to establish a bit of a rapport so she can get into one of these rings quote unquote their secret society in reality, and he asks her something about her parentage and she says that she was raised in an Imperial orphanage or she says she was an orphan. He assumes an Imperial orphanage rightly and seems angry about it. And I understand uh, you were raised there. You might have these sympathies, but it does feel real dirty to blame an orphan orphan for where she was raised. Like it's, he's in a, he's the guy running a bar for, the people who are planning a rebellion so sure he's a little bit of an extremist maybe i guess we can use the word but it's still such a weird stance to take
0: i had simultaneously one of the most innocuous versions of that kind of thing from a fantasy novel this isn't a or from a medieval style setting as opposed to ah yes a bastard an automatically inferior human being we must judge and mock or even ah yes an orphan because of your circumstances, we must judge him. Mock... No, no, no. He has a concrete complaint. It it's a little nasty, but you know, different books have a lot nastier situations. So Catherine should just be content and stop complaining. That's the real problem.
1: I mean, you're not wrong, and I think that's part of why when characters do things that feel weird, it's not not jarring because it's not like it's bad that this happens it's not like it's unbelievable but because everything feels more understandable more reasonable within the story when a character does something that feels a little gross i look at the character and i you know i i want to say to the character what's wrong with you like it's leave the orphan alone i'm not mad mad at the writing i'm mad at toothless tom not to go on
0: an over deep dive tangent like you did a moment ago on the exact same topic. But you would think in a world like this, orphans might actually garner a little extra attention, not for perceived failings of them or their parents or what have you, blah, 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 but rather because orphanitude is such a powerful piece of so many stories. It's the orphan who is, of course, of the lost lineage, and is able to restore the throne. It's the orphan who, just by dint of dire circumstances from birth, ends up having to become the hero. That That's what heroes are, half the time. It's the orphan who ends up being Arthur Foundling. So arguably, that could just be following Catherine's footsteps if there aren't orphan stories yet. But if there aren't orphan stories yet, why aren't there? They seem like fertile ground. Orphans are cool.
1: There absolutely are orphan stories, but I don't know that that's necessarily common knowledge. I think one of the things that we're going to run into a lot, uh, and that we have already for sure, and maybe are right now, is the understanding of the stories and the way that circumstances of birth and things like that lead to actual, real power through names. The awareness of all of that may not be as widespread as we think, just because all of the characters that we get perspective from are aware of it. Does Toothless Tom know that orphans are more likely to be heroes necessarily? Maybe not. Obviously, Black knows. There's a reason that there was some offhanded comment about him keeping an eye on orphanages, because you have to if you're in his position doing what he's doing. But it very well could be that, yes, Toothless Tom has heard stories of the orphan who grew up to become the the white knight or you know whatever, but that that seems like the aspiring, powerful message of hope for orphans, not the norm and it, I don't even think it is the norm actually, but it's the I'm imagine that <laughs> but <laughs> one the, name to kill the parents right <laughs> but, but that is, actually does seem like such a
0: yeah one of the name kill the parents, it'll help a lot. Percentage wise.
1: Right. I, I I do think probably there is a skew towards having parents for a certain type or not having parents for a certain type of name. Um, we've all played D D. Right, exactly. Everybody's familiar with Batman or has played D D or it's a it's a trope. It very much is. And it could just be that the average person isn't aware of how tropes actually work in their universe because name lore, as we've talked about at length, and we will continue uh, to do, uh, name lore is not as well-known as you would expect for a number of different reasons that we're still sort of piecing together.
0: And I want to disagree with that, but I can't, because bits of name lore seem to be a foundational part of some religious texts and sermons and stuff. But on the other hand, I live in a Christian-dominated society where casual knowledge of a lot of biblical things is relatively commonplace, and yet I don't think I could stop people on the street and have anything like a likely chance of having a deep conversation about the doctrine of penal substitution. But it's not as though we know everything about this world and the characters don't. A few episodes ago, by which I mean 10 episodes ago, give or take one, we were talking about the difficulty the Imperial Orphanage had affording food, even though it was an Imperial institution under the governor's taxes. And we questioned why that might be the case, how involved the empire is in the administration, both of these things. And the answer seems to just be, yeah, the imperial orphanage was, pardon me, the lower home for tragically orphaned girls was subject to gubernatorial taxation, just as any other institution. Uh, Catherine that those who was raised in the orphanage it didn't stop the governor from taxing them, thereby winning street cred. And i just like to note, hey, here's the answer to our question.
1: That's true. Also, you mentioned the street cred. Nothing gives you street cred quite like saying, we paid our taxes too, you know.
0: So while in the real world, or at the very least, modern America, you need to instantly activate your fight or flight response if you hear someone describe themselves as a tax paying citizen apparently in calo that activates the camaraderie really feels a bit strong the commiseration gene there of the caloan people
1: yeah i'm not i'm not pracy i'm not paying i pay my taxes to the you know the pracy probably pay their taxes even the legionaries to the dread empress not to mazus he would not last so long
0: if they had to worry about army morale under him yeah Speaking of morale booths, the innkeeper offers, in fact, requires that Catherine strip for his daughter. And while this is clearly a win for both of them, I cannot imagine many fathers around Callow, many protective fathers around Callow, making a similar offer in just two or three years' time. Unless they were, of course, trying to use Seduction by Proxy to get something.
1: It's definitely a line that the delivery of the line is definitely an interesting one. But, you know, you gotta check for the tattoo that is definitely a hundred percent there if Cat were a spy.
0: It's a totally rational safety measure. For sure. That is Cat. Yeah. I am curious, however, after she is told to do that, she thinks for a little bit. There's a bit of internal consideration. She's in a hurry, so she's glad that this has gotten sorted out. Because she has to worry that Chider or Tamika might get the Lone Swordsman before she does, which honestly doesn't seem like too big a deal other than story momentum, which it's impressive she gets set. Because if someone else kills a hero, you know what? Everyone wins. But then her worry is that Rashid, or rather the masked imbecile, might show up and attack her. And she's worried because getting into a fight with someone so obviously Pracy would shut down this avenue of investigation. Why would fighting any Pracy individual upset the Sedition Boys? Oh,
1: they're a secret society right now. They're they survive because they're underneath the notice of the Black Knight. If they publicly get in a fight with Pracy and if somebody who's publicly fighting Pracy is not going to get accepted because they have attention on them. If if they see Cat fight Tamika or Chider, and then she says, "All right, I'm ready," it's going to look like the person who now has Pracy eyes on her wants to join. Also, if you if she fights them and then disappears for a bit to lick her wounds, to take some whatever. If she's gone, it's and then she gets out of custody quickly from their view or is never in custody at all that's suspicious how is it's a very if if people are around enough to notice that she's fighting somebody obviously pracy then people are seeing her fighting that's drawing attention you don't want that for the sons here who are again only alive because they're being quiet right now
0: okay but that's not what she says you're (laughs) right but Catherine is thinking in shorthand
1: That is how how thoughts tend to work, yeah.
0: If you even think in words, many Mm -hmm. people don't. But Catherine doesn't think so much in words as in bodies. When Tom calls over his daughter, her description is a slender, not thin, but the sexy version, slender blonde girl in a conservative blouse. I also read the note of disappointment, readers, we are all on the same page, who has rather striking gray eyes. Which, of course, are the, you know, magic anime eyes of the world. They're not blue or brown like most Callowins. They're gray eyes, so they're mysterious. Catherine doesn't explicitly say it, much like in her previous thought, but here I'm willing to read in how very
1: I think what you're intimate for, her thoughts yeah, are becoming. Yes, it's fortunate that Kat is in a bar because she is thirsty.
0: Second best line of the episode.
1: Thank you. While she's getting to know Elise, as we learn... Uh, this bartender's daughter at uh, least mentions that the governess died, um, without really explaining a whole lot more past that. Which, as we mentioned earlier, we know how that that happened. It turns out, Kat's prediction back when the pavilion exploded was accurate. She was the person who said they're going to be targeting the governess. Turns out, she was right. It was a good call.
0: I think it's still fantastic that the story glosses over it.
1: So in this. Seen the reason that Kat is being asked to strip in front of Elise is obviously to search for the eye tattoo. Um, she looks at Elise, looks at Kat to check for it, says that she's good. There's some lingering of the eyes, of course, you know, got to have a little bit of that in here. But the important thing here is the eyes trick, the illusion, the deception, I guess, that Black talked about a couple chapters ago is clearly working very well. Um, we see it in action here which I have to say great little bit of setup for why this is happening a couple chapters ago without making it a big deal without explicitly saying things here. Pretty cool. I like that, but I have to ask, does no version of makeup exist in this world? Uh, if in this situation, I don't know. I understand that the idea is oh, they're so dedicated that they know that if they're not perfect and they get caught, they'd rather die. Well, sure. There's a branding thing, prevent traders, But do the Callowans not think that maybe some spies who have a permanent mark of their loyalty might disguise that somehow? This is a glance at Cat's back, and that's good enough.
0: Spoilers! For Lemony Snicket's a series of unfortunate events. But even Count Olaf covers up his eye tattoo with makeup. And he's a buffoon. And do you think Elise is not willing to get uh, hands-on with these checks? She's already uh, got some lingering views mentioned here.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. It very well could be that the check is sort of a perfunctory, well, we do the thing, and that's good enough, since they know they're going to be double-checking with William's special eyes later. That's very fair. But it is odd. I will, however, note
0: that since no one could possibly have been offended earlier in a previous episode by my disparaging of Dune, and Our listeners hang on my every word for book recommendations. Mm -hmm. Though a children's series, a series of unfortunate events, is mad-based, and you should read it. So, Elise has some lingering looks. Elise flirts a bit with Catherine. And then, with the slightest, possibly not even the slightest, without any overt invitation from Catherine... Who is only experiencing internal pleasure? Elise just goes straight in with a comment on Catherine's sword. I've been meaning to learn how to use one. Maybe you should show me how good you are at handling yours one of these days. She said, smiling wickedly. Are Callowens just all like
1: that? First of all. Yeah, guess, yeah. First of all, I don't think it's just Callowens. Second of all, look, I'm going to tiptoe around this and we're going to keep this as metaphorically as metaphorical as possible but the sword metaphor based flirting is an odd one between two women i the homosexual man i can't imagine what the issue is here i think that's about as far as i am comfortable pushing that line of thought just for our uh, our podcast's ratings but it's I feel like in the moment it's one of those things that gets said, and you say it with the right tone, and that's good enough. And then later you're thinking about it and realize that, huh, maybe that was an awkward thing to have said.
0: I think Elise is doing spectacularly, and I can't I it,
1: wait to see how she develops over the course of the novel. For what it's worth, it works. Like honestly,
0: okay, but it's Catherine. Well.
1: That's true. very true. But you, you mentioned, are Callowans just like that? In the next line, so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe. Well, I have a thought on this. Kat says, ah, Callowan girls. So much more straightforward about our interests than coy, prostrate ladies, or haughty, free cities maids. How does Kat know that? Is Kat rubbing elbows or other things with prostrate ladies? Is she around people from the free cities? especially? Hottie free city maids? Uh, She's an orphan in the capital of Calo. She probably is only around Calowans and Pracy, right? You're not aware of the
0: regular delegations from Bellerophon that vote to come in and just vacation in Sunny Lore?
1: (laughs) Well, okay, so, sure. I guess Hottie... If you know anything about the free cities, I guess Hottie's a pretty good descriptor. Like, It doesn't matter which free city you're talking about. It, that probably works, and I guess you could use the word coy if you know anything about high society. In pro sure, but man, it's it cat speaks as though it's experience rather than secondhand. Uh whatever. Maybe maybe young cat had a run in with yeah, like you said, the daughters of the of delegations, and who knows?
0: I actually find that hilarious. Seven-year-old orphan cat standing in the middle of a rooftop, trying to get the courage to walk to the side. And suddenly, a proseran lady who's come to negotiate something, despite the uh, dread curtain between the Empire and the Principate, walks by and sees this little girl on the roof and says, Child! What are you doing up there? And Catherine says, Nice dress! And the woman looks at her and just keeps going. And her immediate reaction is, hmm, playing coy, are you? I think that's Catherine. That's the explanation.
1: I think you've nailed it.
0: So to skip a couple pages of this, because nothing unaddressed really happens, Cad is given the go-ahead to go ahead and go to the head of the next step of the organization, which is meeting in the unused portion of the Royal Foundry, which is unused because most of the... Imperial supplies come from the imperial forges, which will be a plot point in the future. Is there any real-world analog to, ah, yes, Rome-only armoured soldiers with good Thracian steel, even though people brought their own for a long time? Or, yes, Prussians-only use good, what would a good, good Dresden armor which would of course be made of porcelain
1: well first of all not thracian steel but spanish um oh so where is thrace uh west of the black sea like it's sort of the uh i'm looking for the country name sorry it uh like bulgaria ish um but anyway so uh, kind of you would have you would Your armors are going to be near your metal places. It doesn't make sense before modern day to mine the iron from France, ship it to Greece to be made, and then ship it to the front over in Portugal. Apparently, since that's the well, most of the stuff you'd be shipping would be rock. So, yeah, exactly. It it doesn't. It does. Logistics like that don't really make sense until you have modern shipping um, or near modern shipping. But so you, you'd you want your creation of arms to be as close to the raw materials as you can, since that sheds most of the weight. Um, plus, prior to globalization, there is a lot more to be said for regional skill sets in a way that, while mm, can be true sure. today, it's not as prominent the romans since that's who you brought up the romans learned steel making like actual steel rather than slightly carbonized iron from the spanish uh so for a while the best weaponry came from spain you would have your swords from spain and so if you could theoretically cut off spain from the rest of the empire you are depriving the romans of their best armor and weapons so there is that um having it be fully centralized to one city, maybe uh, that seems risky to me, but then again, it is price. Um, and that seems like the kind of thing that a dread empire would have, you know, a single weak point. Just how can, how can you not have that? Um, but yeah, having localized specialty forges to supply armies far away. Sure. That makes perfect sense. Um, I love it. And speaking of, specialty production, localized specialty production. Our segues are so good. They're unbelievable. Summerholm is the gate of the east. It is not, as Kat says here, uh, it was not made with commerce or industry in mind. It was more castle than city. Summerholm isn't a place that's providing food to the Empire or to the Empire. Sure, actually. Food to the Empire or to the rest of Calo. It's not providing anything. It is it's a castle. It's a fortress. It's fortifications to prevent Prace from freely crossing into it, uh I think it's said here, or maybe another point, it has been conquered exactly two times. And one of those is by the most successful military commander in Colernian history. And the other is by Black, who maybe can't claim that title, but could claim perhaps the most efficient, practical military commander that we see, at least aside from maybe cap, So it's a special city, but it's not practical. Hmm, it's odd to me that it's still a city and not described as a fortress with a city that sprung up around it or a fortress with a lot of people in it. It's it seems like based on how it used to be um, or not how it used to be, but how it is a city and a bastion that it's sort of built up like that that's a weird way for a city to form that feels a little artificial and also that it's mixed that it's people living here they talk about dead ends where there are arrow slits and and these watchtowers throughout the streets it's not a bastion in the traditional sense where part of it is meant to hold out forever and the invaders thus can't go around because it cuts off supply lines you know the the main purpose of a fortress historically it's It's a killing field. It's meant to bleed invaders as they come in. It's made to be as painful as possible to take in the first place, rather than just holding out. It's historically, it feels weird, but boy, is it extremely Callowin. That, yep, yes, stereotypes can be true. I don't feel like this is a stereotype about Callow. That's and or maybe it is. That's the cool thing about this story. Stereotypes just—it's not just that stereotypes can be true. It's that if the stereotype gains enough momentum, it forces itself to be true to an extent.
0: Remarkable. Also remarkable, there are two resistance groups. The Sons of Stregé, and one made up of former members of the Thieves Guild. Why?
1: Why is the Thieves why are former Thieves Guild members resisting?
0: Yes. I thought they worked really hard to mollify.
1: Now, I don't know. For sure, the timelines. But my gut instinct is that it's made up of former members of the Thieves Guild because of the Thief. Let's keep an eye on this. Agreed. And speaking of the Thief and other heroes, I honestly, during this reread, I forgot that William shows up this early in the story. I knew that he was Cat's first you know, enemy. Man. I, I, you know, he's he's Cat's first enemy. He's, you know, aside from the other claimants. I just in my mind looking back at these early chapters before getting here the claimant struggle lasted a little longer and there was a little bit more education with Black before William showed up no he's this is chapter what chapter 11 that's so early it's fantastic i william's the worst but i love him I, i'm excited it also means he doesn't stick around forever but we're we're here we're we're getting at him. I, I, mean, I, listen. I was pleasantly surprised when I realized that he, she was meeting him. This chapter, it's great,
0: and he's great—a really likable guy. Hmm. Do you disagree? Hmm. He's such a great guy that people are talking about him. Catherine discussed the possibility of a hero with the Black Knight who has eyes everywhere, by which I mean who has Eudokia. But Catherine. When she hears that the swordsman is coming, says, It's true, then, I murmured, trying to sound surprised. There's a hero in summerhold So she's banking on the fact that word has trickled amongst the mundane when the master is somewhat careful with his estimation of the situation.
1: You're saying she's banking on the fact that uh, the people she's talking to won't say, how do you know that, basically? Exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, that makes sense since uh the source of information about there maybe being a hero is listening to rumors but that is true i mean that is a little bit of a risk it could very well be that those rumors are coming from the kind of people who would patronize the lost crown and not the average summer homie summer homie ah yes yeah, the summer homies no i think she fights the summer homies later
0: they can pretend i wasn't about to go
1: there um
0: But Kat really is getting herself into a dangerous situation of a hero showing up.
1: She is, but she doesn't seem to think it's as dangerous as we know it to be. When she's considering the possibility that she's going to be running into a hero, she thinks the following line. Would I be able to take the hero in a fight? Maybe. Hey, Kat, you don't even have a full name yet. And the name you're going for is a transition name. It's Squire. Also, let's go back to the last two lines ago in speech not in text he says we'll start when the swordsman gets here cat if if he had said we'll start when the high mage gets here would you say would i be able to out magic the hero no you're not going to outfight somebody called the swordsman as a a person a normal person who's a little faster and stronger than the people around her again Cat just does not understand what names are and do at all.
0: No, no. But think, if he's a swordsman, he probably has armor on, so he'll be really slow. And she's got name speed. So checkmate.
1: It all comes back to the armor.
0: So she's in a dangerous position. A hero is coming. There are 20 mundanes about her, all of them armed, all of them dangerous. She does not have a full name by any means. She's not vying for a particularly powerful name in itself anyway. And when she finds out that the swordsman has some kind of method to determine whether or not she's a spy, she is happy knowing that since they do it to everyone who gets to this point, it must surely then not be particularly powerful or painful. And well, no one particularly wants to experience pain outside of those who follow in the vein of Leopold von Zacher masoch from whose name we get the word masochism. Mm-hmm. I really don't think, oh, I hope it's not painful, when he discovers that I am a spy and then kills me for it. Catherine has trouble weighing things. This is a character trait that doesn't go away. And I'm just grateful to be reading about our precious little girl again.
1: I think she must just be hoping that he can detect... Outright lies or something, because yeah, <laughs> she really struggles with what it is names actually mean. But fair enough, if they're again name lore is not taught in the Imperial Orphanage.
0: You don't think Black made his most powerful secret into a piece of the curriculum. <laughs> it seems unlikely. She then wonders if heroes can tell if they're in the presence of a villain. And look, I know she's a villainous contender for a name that seems decided to be villainous because everyone in contention for it is obviously on the side of villainy but is cat cosmologically speaking a villain yet? I don't know.
1: I mean, first the fact that she says could heroes tell the general? I mean, obviously not. Like that that would be absurd. But but to answer your specific question, yeah, I think so. This isn't uh hmm this isn't a Brando Sando novel with hard magic rules where everything's very explicitly laid out. It's story-based. She, It's... it's The rules are a little more soft in a way that, you know, can mean that the narrative has more weight. She's apprenticed to a villain and is claiming a name and has enough name power to do necromancy, and uh, if they could detect villains, they'd detect her.
0: I will give it to you. But you know what she detects?
1: Tell me what she detects.
0: How sexy everyone she meets is. We talked a bit about her wandering eye with Elise, but what she says about the lone swordsman shows you exactly where her mind went. He was quote, darkly handsome with messy black hair and vivid green eyes. His face was one made for brooding, all angles and wind swept locks and his long brown leather coat did nothing to detract from that impression. A leather coat.
1: Yeah. He's an anime character.
0: Just like Elise has anime eyes, because they're gray. It made sense when I said it before, so it makes sense now. Absolutely. So Catherine has a type. She's really into animes. If she were to meet, like, a girl with weird hair color, it would probably be a whole thing until it suddenly wasn't.
1: Weird hair hair color and magic in her blood, or, you know... Can you imagine? Yeah. That would be absurd. (laughs) Oh, Cat. Going on, she talks a little bit about uh, William a bit more and mentions his sword and thinks to herself, enchanted? That could be trouble. If she only knew, like, enchantment is one thing, William's sword is kind of a different thing altogether, and she wishes it were simply enchanted. Actually, no, that would be bad for her in the long run. But at this point, she wishes it were merely enchanted. But she was right that it could be trouble. (laughs) <laughs> Very true. Lone Swordsman, when he enters, offers up some interesting dialogue. To he he talks to the people here. He's something like a motivational, not quite a speech. It's not as one-sided as all of that, but definitely some <laughs> heroic platitudes, I suppose. But then he says, "The Black Knight himself is in the city, and that is an occasion we won't be getting again anytime soon." It's fr- it's not phrased like "Now's our chance to." strike elsewhere because he's distracted here it's lone swordsman my guy this isn't gonna work out the way you hope it will (laughs) i can see your ambitions in this line i can see what it is you're going for and oh boy uh, you are reaching well above your station
0: which probably makes him even more powerful given his name probably and when he does this he does it while if i may quote Commanding everyone's attention with a kind of effortlessness I could only envy. Which, sure, true. But, Cat, give it a few years. All eyes will be on you. Just give it a moment.
1: Yeah. The difference, though, is William's got the charisma. Cat has the painstakingly painstakingly built aura and reputation of power. So it's not effortless. Mm-hmm for her more like
0: pain takingly
1: (laughs) she gets hurt she does a lot basically it isn't not not anytime soon i hope um yep you're definitely right there will be no pain for this part of for the next couple of sentences at least
0: what what fun sentences they are the lone swordsman gives a big (laughs) rousing two-line speech we still have half the munitions from the raid on the Sixth Legion's armory, and with those backed and with those backed by a little cleverness, I propose to put down the monster who brought ruin to the kingdom. And the response to that, murmurs of approval went through the room at the declaration. He declares that they are going to take down the greatest monster of the age. And all about the room, people say, "Hmm, yes, quite good. Yes, very good. Hmm, I quite agree. Yes." Little murmurs.
1: Right, yeah, just polite agreement. Golf claps. I really, I mean, part of that could very well be a couple of people are excited and actually believe what he's saying, and everybody else is concerned. Sort of the objections I I and we just brought up a moment ago. It's, there are people that are like, yeah, oh, nobody else is excited. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we can definitely do this. Right, guys? There's some nerves in the room. It's black. Yeah, but who wouldn't be... Roused their
0: feet, cheering at the absolute declaration of an emo teenager.
1: This is kind of interesting to me. I, especially with his effortless charisma, the fact that he's the leader of this group, the fact that he's in a band, a five man band later. So I'm wondering if the Lone Swordsman.
0: His first mistake given his name.
1: Yes. Exactly. I'm wondering if the reason that he doesn't actually win that many actual direct fights is he hamstringing his own name by always being in groups by leading by building bands around himself by doing a rebellion as a group rather than challenging black directly to a duel or something like is he maybe one of his i i don't know if we know all of his aspects i know one of them is this ever simple cut um i'm wondering if there's an aspect he's missing out on or just he's walking alongside his role rather than fully diving into it. He's focusing entirely on Callowin hero who's a swordsman rather than the lone aspect, and that's why he does very well as a rebellion leader, but not so well as a swordsman.
0: Interesting. He would surely have come into his name for lone swordsmany reasons, but by acquiring his name, he starts getting put into this organization, whatever rebellious element there is in Kalos starts trying to integrate him into their structure, thereby tackling their salvation?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, it It just seems odd. There are instances where people lose their name when they're no longer abiding by its story, obviously. A couple of very famous ones late in the story. But there are also instances where people keep their name past what you would expect, honestly um and so it's obviously a case-by-case situational thing and how flexible certain stories are and maybe the lone swordsman's story is not as flexible as he thinks it is
0: hard to say it's so many stories though but not all of them use swords
1: the yeah the the hmm. yeah exactly the rebels shortly hereafter talk about the white wizard um who is dead now thanks to the warlock and black and you know i'm bringing this up mostly callow has a lot of wizards doesn't it like price is famously magical compared to the other mortal civilizations the other mortal polities um but they don't tend to have as many magical names callow's got the wizard of the west and the white wizard and a number of other the uh the bumbling conjurer i i don't know it just seems like they get a lot of mage names coming up out of their not particularly magically focused culture.
0: Probably all you need to do to get that kind of name in Callow is do magic. And then people say, wow, a wizard! And we're in the West! Honestly, fair. A wizard! And, oh, that's a nice white shirt you're wearing today. The white wizard.
1: So have we just unraveled it? The Calamities aren't actually that powerful. It's just that Callow and heroes are terrible.
0: I doubt it. Nothing.
1: (laughs) The Lone Swordsman doesn't know how to be alone. The Wizards in Callow barely know how to do magic. Yep, turns out. The thief gets the first taste of comfort she can and literally
0: lets her name die.
1: Yeah, but she's actually a very good thief before that. Oh yeah, she's great. Fair. I think we've talked about my next thing, actually. Um, I'm going to delete that comment. I don't think it's actually necessary to bring up. There's a little bit of a discussion about how to beat black and william mentions killing names with goblin munitions which the counterpoint to that is a uh, they can kill run-of-the-mill named maybe and william channels probably every single named person ever in saying i'm not a run-of-the-mill hero my friend he's just really putting on that anime mantle and I, I, There are very few heroes or villains that I can imagine not having that thought or saying that out loud at some point. No, no, no. I'm not a normal hero. I'm a special hero.
0: But then I think something very interesting happens. Something that doesn't come to fruition for a book and a half more. He's not the run-of-the-mill hero, my friend. He says, I swore I would see the kingdom restored, and I will see that oath through to the bitter end. And Catherine, in pulling the sword from the stone, takes on that story. She works to restore the kingdom. She is playing the role of the heir to Callow. And the Lone Swordsman is putting that story out there with this claim. These are the kinds of words that have real weight. And Catherine, if I may be so bold, takes that story from him. And kills him. I think that's
1: interesting. I I don't want to get too deep into the second half of this, the seeing the oath through to the bitter end, yet, because it comes up frequently, and I think next chapter there's some very useful dialogue that adds some color to this that I think we will spend a lot of time discussing. Um, but I think the idea of Cat... Taking up that mantle, usurping it, maybe, I think that is an interesting angle to take on this that I don't know that be- I don't know that that becomes apparent for quite some time, but yeah, that's interesting the some of the imagery you talked about, I think is really powerful, and I, I definitely am looking forward to reading that i It has been a good long while since I've read these early chapters, so I'm a lot of the details are a little foggy, so i'm I'm excited to to sort of compare what you're talking about to, to the actual text as it comes up. Want to do a reread together sometime? Sure. Let's make it quick, though, like a whirlwind reread. Absolutely.
0: After he makes this dramatic statement, Catherine first becomes a female lead of a 1980s coming of age film and says, oh, gag me. But That's after beautiful. that, she stops and thinks about it for a moment and realizes, quote, hells, it actually might help him kill the likes of Black. Roles take to that kind of theater like a duck to water. She has a natural sense for this kind of thing. She's getting it.
1: She's slowly starting to pick it up and by slowly I mean incredibly quickly um since this is her first interaction eight days. yeah, 8 days and this is her first interaction with a hero actually. So, great job, Cat, actually. This is very well done. Less well done is how she handles being interrogated by William. She's the new person. She has to be interrogated by the hero to see where her loyalties lie. He's got some kind of truth detection, it seems, since he calibrates it by asking her name and then asks what color the sky is. And in this very serious life or death situation where this person with a magic sword is checking to see if she is loyal to the government, he is trying to burn to the ground. She asks him what color or he asks her what color the sky is, and her response is some pithy depends on the time of day. Cat, just say blue this This person has anything said so far given you the impression that the lone swordsman has even the conception that senses of humor exist, let alone has one himself? Come on. You are playing with fire here. You're playing with goblin fire. What's that? It's just something I made up. Huh. But the thing is,
0: Cat couldn't do nervous because I'm a spy more plainly if she were a trained actress. She says that. He frowns, she says it's blue, and his frown deepens, and he says, that's strange. To which she immediately, nervously, replies, people usually wait to know me a few days before making that comment. <laughs> And then he says, I can't read you at all. That's never happened before. To which she replies, oh, if I had a silver for every time I heard that line. I... And he stabs her. But Catherine is not meant for subterfuge at all. No. I think her getting the night later on isn't making her into some kind of perfect stealth villain or anything. It's bringing her up to the level of a slightly below average mundane person. I mean,
1: Pat can be stealthy when she needs to. She can directly lie about things with a straight face. I don't think she's ever a particularly good liar, but she can lie. But this kind of deception, the subterfuge—that's the—that is the issue. She's awful. <laughs> she's so bad, remarkably bad. And honestly, a good person to be bad at it because I uh, against the lone swordsman here. I don't think is relying on social cues to figure anything out. He's not like reacting to what he's she's saying in a hmm, that's suspicious way. Oh, my magic powers aren't reading you right. That's the problem here. She could say anything she wanted, and it wouldn't really affect his opinion of her in this moment. Again, sense of humor and concern over the subtleties of, you know, human conversation, I think are well outside of the swordsman's handful of strengths. You know, things like wearing a dramatic coat and Cutting things hard, he doesn't have many strengths,
0: but he does lean into them
1: for sure. She, you mentioned she gets stabbed. She blocks it. She uh, drops another. That's the type of getting stabbed. <laughs> sure, she <laughs> she drops another line with, "Well, this is awkward." Again, the teen movie. She she literally gives us gag me and this is awkward. Um, somebody calls her a traitor, and she drops honestly. Despite me making fun of her ability to interact with people in this little scene here, something that I would call an absolutely incredible line, she's called a traitor, and she says, "Technically, I'm the only person in this room not committing treason." That is peak. I I adore that line. Obviously, it r- results in people drawing their weapons and her thinking to herself, "Tough crowd." And I can imagine kind of like pulling at her collar and saying, "Like, eee," ee. but. It's still a very good line. A
0: very good line, but and this gets better next chapter immediately. Or maybe not better, but the issue I'm about to address, I think, goes away next chapter. But some of the dialogue here, it seems just slightly to the left of what I expect from PGTE. It's very bantery. It's very fun, even in mid-life or death combat, mostly. But I don't know. The level of comic banter here is just a bit over the top by PGTE standards if you ask me. She thinks tough crowd and then says now I know what all of you are asking yourselves right now. Is that girl a spy? She notices two rebels are blocking the door. The answer to that question may surprise you she continues. There was a heartbeat of silence. Is it yes? Is the answer to that question yes? So Catherine hasn't yet developed her understanding of and I hate to say it E.E. has not, this chapter alone, I promise, next chapter gets better, developed his understanding of the tone he means to strike in PGTE, if you ask me. But Catherine hasn't developed her sense of how aspects work, has she?
1: Not really, no. She, She, going back and forth with William, he offers some kind of threat, and she says, I felt safe in assuming that diplomacy was not one of his aspects. and. I, I gotta wonder what would that aspect be? Diplome? Diplomance? It it doesn't obviously it's not one of his aspects, Cat, come on. But on top of that, his name is Lone Swordsman. His charisma is because he's a Callowin hero and you know, based on what she's young and pretty and all that not because his name is empowering him to lead groups of people, I don't think, except by example, maybe. Yes, cat. Diplomacy is not one of his aspects. You are a hundred percent correct,
0: which is amazing because while she takes a moment to remark on the obvious here, she then reveals her unusually powerful grasp of name lore when, well, given that there were two named in the room, it seemed fair that that was the precise moment where the back of the room exploded. Yeah, she's already been in one exploding room and said, "Oh, Yes, this is what happens when names get together. She's moving on fast. She just doesn't know how aspects work because she only has one. Well, I wonder if she'll ever get another
1: she, next chapter. She has the taste of one. Because, again, I have to insist, there's one named in the room right now. And there's a claimant to another name. Well,
0: You know, actually, if you expand your gaze just beyond the room, there is actually one full other named than the Lone Swordsman. It's just divided up right now.
1: Okay, I can give you that kind of. I think and... Catherine's wrong. Sure, but she's actually right. She's just wrong about it. Yeah, and you know, talking about the rest of the name that's split up, the it ex- the explosion is of course uh, Tamika and Chider showing up to basically kill steel here. But as a bit of a standoff develops, Tamika opts to shoot at Cat despite being in close range with a crossbow to both Cat and the Lone Swordsman. I understand wanting to get rid of the other claimants, sure. But does that feel like a very weird tactical choice to you as well, to not try to put a bolt in the hero who's in the room first?
0: Yeah, but you have to remember that apparently Catherine is the type of person who gets a name, or who contends for a name. So we can just assume Tamika is the exact same thing as Catherine. And we learn soon that eris asked for this and eris is very hot therefore let me get seeing this for the money
1: Fair enough i suppose looking at it if if you look at things happening in this chapter through the context of information revealed later on they make a little more sense but who's got the time for that honestly i don't even have time for this podcast you know what i don't think i do either because we are pretty much out of it tonight folks
0: Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata, as we discuss
1: Almost Getting Murdered, Murdering, and Getting Murdered.
0: Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguide to evilwordpresscom Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was A Sinister Power Rising, epic, dark, gothic soundtrack by Gioli Fazeri. Outer music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at TheLongPrice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and liege, Always the claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 12, Squire. Okay, so I asked an AI, you know the one, to tell me about A Practical Guide to Evil, and this is what it came up with. Yes, I am familiar with A Practical Guide to Evil. It is a fantasy novel series written by Error Tree, which follows the story of Catherine Foundling, a young orphan who is taken in by the wicked Lady Evil and becomes her apprentice in the ways of evil. The series follows Catherine as she navigates the dangerous and cutthroat world of high fantasy politics and tries to find her own path in the face of expectations and challenges from those around her. The series has been well-received and has a dedicated following.